Welcome to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. You're listening to a Planet Pod election special. And I'm delighted to be able to say that because I haven't ever said that as part of um, the Planet Pod series that we've been running over the last year. But today, on the day of the European elections, I'm really privileged to be joined by Amelia Womack, who's deputy leader of the Green Party. Amelia, thank you so thank much. You. Um, and I think it obviously there are some things we can't talk about because it's an election day. But we really, I think this is an opportunity to have a conversation about what feels to me like a kind of sea change in British politics around the role of the environment and our awareness of the environment and people stepping up to the plate and taking action as individuals but also perhaps seeing for the first time a real political opportunity to make a change. How does it feel from where you're sitting? And there's so much going on at the moment. And I think after having such an incredible council election uh, where we saw nearly 200 councillors getting elected across the country and showing that people really wanted that green representation, um, people talking about climate change and the climate emergency like they never have done before. It was actually Greens in Bristol that created, that declared the first climate emergency in the UK, and that was over six months ago. And we've seen um, the climate emergencies in over 50 councils across the country now, as well as the the Parliament, uh, the UK Parliament. And it does show a change in attitudes. And you can't look at the the news at the moment without seeing the fact that our, um, the, the melting of our ice caps, the shrinking of our glaciers. And I think that, but I think there's so much more in terms of policy of how we address that. And, and people want solutions, having seen, I mean, David Attenborough has been an incredible ambassador for change at the moment, a real change maker when it's come to this, because his life, um, I don't know if you've ever read his autobiography, it's an incredible read, but his lifetime, he's seen that destruction. He used to go to pristine environments, and now you can't go to any of them without, without it being touched by plastic. You can't go to the rainforest without seeing um, farming uh, land um, expanding into where there used to be habitats for what are now nearly extinct species. And being able to see something like that in your lifetime would spur you to action. And so I think people are more aware, but people see that change happens because of political will. And I think that's so vitally important as well. Yeah, and actually, you know, while we all look at the, the amazing things that Attenborough does and his experiences, for many of us, that's very far away from our day-to-day lives. But, but you only have to, to, to go out into your local park or walk down your local high street to actually see that, that the environment has a... and the change our changing use and relationship with the environment over the last few years and the way that we've, you know, exploited the Earth's resources... Is having a direct effect on our on our local, you know, more local population. So biodiversity loss just in your garden, you know, the fact that we don't get hedgehogs, the fact that we don't mm-hmm. have songbirds, the fact that our insect population is massively in decline, you know, those sorts of things, and that wider agenda about people connecting with their communities. Because I think what we're having now is a sense that actually things that you've always stood for as as a Green Party actually suddenly become real to people because Mm -hmm. it's not just about the melting of the ice caps. Because for many people that feels like a very long way away. It's also about sustainability in the communities in which they live. Um, And and perhaps that's that's why people feel able to get engaged with your agenda in a way that that feels more mainstream now. Because for many people, perhaps 10 years ago, the Greens were seen as, you know, perhaps fringe or perhaps not, you know, not as powerful. 
So it's that sense that some of these issues are coming right into the main, mainstream for people in their daily lives. I just wanted to add another example that I think resonates with a lot of people, which is um, when you're driving, you used to have to clean your windscreen far more often and wipe your number plate because the number of insects that would get squashed on there as you're going through through country lanes or even kind of smaller roads. And now people are just saying that's not the same anymore. And I think that people do understand that that links to our food production, that links to so much more um, that isn't just about the number of insects that we have on our roads. It's about the, 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 our ability to sustain ourselves as a species and I think I always feel that the Green Party have been saying about this for 30 years since the very beginning and the best time for these policies was 30 years ago but the second best time is right now today Today, and I think uh, with the UN saying that we've got just 11 years to take positive steps to keep us within 1.5 degrees of warming which could fundamentally change the entire world as we know it. We're watching islands disappear as an effect of uh, increase uh, sea levels, we're seeing the Great Barrier Reef die before our eyes and people see this as an emergency and I, they say we've got 11 years, that means that we've just got 11 months really to put that policy in place because action is needed now. I often think about um, our London Assembly members who have been championing, because the London Assembly is a proportional system, they've been championing these things for decades and you just think when now that we're still talking about the need for electric buses, what, where would we be if, if when they were first elected, they'd just put that vision in place? We'd have a, a, a city that would have been fit for 2019 and the challenges that we face today, uh, rather than still being addicted to fossil fuels, to, our, to a, a dirty transport network with um, cars. Not to mention the air pollution, which is absolutely, a subject that, that we cover, cover a lot on the pod. So I think that it's interesting because you just touched on that and in terms of representation and for many people, perhaps until quite recently, they'd have felt, well, I can't, I can't cast my vote. I want to, but I can't cast my vote for the Greens because that's a vote wasted because, you know, I'm sitting in a very safe Labour seat mm-hmm. or very safe Tory seat. And certainly at national election level, that's the case, isn't it, because of our first past the post. But, but, but our European elections, it's very different, isn't it, because the system is different. Absolutely. And I would say that as Greens, we are breaking that first past the post system. And the fact that we've got elected into so many councils across the country shows that we can win in a first past the post um, electoral system. We actually, uh, one of our candidates told us that he wanted to just come a strong second. That was his aim and ambition. And uh, he lost on the toss of a coin. So he probably had, um, there was an even number of votes. They recounted and recounted and recounted and they had to go to a coin and he came second as a result of a toss of a coin. So it was the strongest second place you could have, you could ever have had. I had to say... It just shows the power of voting. <laughs> I, I thought I knew quite a lot about the electoral system, but I have never heard that if it's actually a dead tie at the end, you literally flip a coin. Yes. Yeah, what yeah. a ludicrous idea. And if you had a proportional system, then it wouldn't work like that because all of the different methods will bring something to appoint something of a vote because once um, to ensure that every single vote is counted and represented then the way you work it out uh, creates uh, kind of far more than just a whole vote at the end of it really so I think there's less opportunity for that to happen in a proportional system and I think you know, that is the power of these European elections as the Green Party we have three MEPs in the European Parliament Caroline Lucas is one of our former MEPs who represented the South East and um, I think that the f- people know that if you vote Green, you've got more of an opportunity to get more Greens elected. And this proportional system is a real opportunity to, to put your vote where you believe is the best place for you to cast it uh, for whatever priority you might have in the next five years. 
Mm. And obviously the Greens have had, you know, Europe has been really important in driving through some of those very, very important um, environmental legislations and environmental acts. And and you must worry that if we pull out of the European Union, then, then some of those environmental protections are under threat, are they not? I'm terrified of it, to be honest. And I think that the ambition of the European Union has set the agenda. Even things like um, the uh, challenging air quality, making sure that we're reaching climate targets. These are best things to do internationally because pollution uh, knows no borders. Climate change doesn't know any borders. And uh, there's been, I always joke that I feel like the European Union is a bit like the Andy Murray of politics. So we all know how Andy Murray is um, he's British when he's winning and Scottish when he's losing. And uh, I feel like with European politics, it's so easy to blame the European Union for the failures that are actually failures of our own government in many cases. Definitely about um, things like air quality. The fact that we've had to continually absolutely. take the government to, to court over European legislation around air quality. And then when there's good policy, like even small things like the plastic bag tax, which uh, I'm from Wales, we'd implemented, I can't remember how how long ago, but it's so institutionalised now as a result of it being there for well over a decade that the government took it as as a win for them. And I think that, you know, that the ambition of the European Union has been forgotten as a result of that trend that we see in our politics. And as I said, we need to be working internationally on our shared problems. And when we've seen votes go through Parliament that have been about how we bring EU policy into UK policy, we've seen a lot of those environmental policies being watered down. And I really fear for what the future of this country could be like if we continue to water down those environmental policies at such a crucial time in our history. Yeah. But, but you're, you know, you're an active voice in politics. You've stood for election at national level as well. I mean, we, we can't possibly have this conversation without talking about women in politics. And how would any woman put herself forward for elected office at the moment, given what's happening to some of our you know, national female politicians and given what's happening to people at local level? The amount of abuse and, and even in some cases death threats. I mean, what is, how, how are we going to change that narrative? I think I've been working on a campaign to make misogyny a hate crime, which has obviously been put into the hate crime review as a point of the Voyeurism Act, uh, which is uh, basically where they said it's now illegal for people to take photos at the skirts of women. And you just think the fact that that had to be, you suddenly had to go through policy, uh, Parliament to make that illegal is and it was just a young woman's campaign in the first place. We've actually experienced it. Ludicrous, but but but, and, um, but you but can make it a crime, but you won't stop it happening. I mean, really, how can we change that? But back? I think to measure is to manage, okay. and um, actually, if we're able to measure what's happening in our communities, then we're able to tackle some of those root causes. But I think lots of these issues that of, of the. Uh, of the abuse that women get happens on social media. And if you've ever tried to report abuse on social media, there's nothing to say that you're experiencing sexism. And so, but the other hate crime boxes are there. So I can report racism and I see it disappear. And thank goodness it disappears. Sometimes those accounts get shut down. Um, But if I report misogyny, they'll often come back and say, we saw no issue with this complaint. And um, although more serious issues that are linked to rape and violence do disappear, it is, um, to be honest, it's that low-lying stuff that chips away at women. And I think that we need to be making sure that we're using that policy effectively because although I think that Twitter have been shamed into 
into taking action and Facebook have been shamed into taking action. It actually needs to be set. We can't normalise this. We're allowing it to get normalised by the fact that we're not holding people to account for their actions. And where it is a hate crime in Nottingham, where people, uh, women are saying they can walk down the streets with their heads held higher, knowing that the bar is set high for their own protection. And so I think it's really important that we're challenging that. And when it comes to politics as well, you know, we need stronger diversity and we need to be making sure that women are represented. It's 100 years since some women got the vote. And although we stand on the shoulders of giants, the battle is not won. And um, the fact that the, the women who dare to raise their heads above the parapet get shot down by people who are often shot down by bigots, shot down by people who really shouldn't be, um, which are are feeling challenged, I think, by the rise of women. Um, I actually uh, met somebody who voted leave in the EU referendum because they said that uh, women had got too tall with their rights as a result of the European Union. And I think that, you know, there's so much underlying uh, misogyny that needs to be addressed But the best way to do that is by making sure we've got that strong representation of women in parliament and politics, business in our communities. And I think that we need to be challenging it um, the the more it gets normalised. Yeah. And obviously women have to support other women. But, but, you know, if you're a woman in politics in the UK at the moment, if you're in the House of Commons, you are still in a very small minority, really. I mean, outnumbered two to one and... And it's very difficult to get women to come through that because they look at what's happening and they look at the abuse that their families might get and their, their partners and their lives will be totally disrupted by putting themselves forward. So so we need a better pipeline, don't we, to support those mm-hmm. young women and we need to encourage women to stand up and, and, and take that step. Um, but it's kind of depressing that 100 years on, you know, we're still talking about still marching and we're still campaigning and Absolutely. it hasn't been normalised. And you can drive, um, you know, you can drive misogyny out into the open in a public space, but you cannot control it and you cannot stop it if it's being reinforced by the wider values of our political system. And I think my sense is that it is being reinforced by that, isn't it? We are allowing our politicians to behave in a way that they would never normally have behaved. I mean, the the quality of our public discourse has gone down, the language that Mm -hmm. we allow people to use about themselves and each other is just shocking. I mean, since when do we call out? fellow you know fellow human beings as treasonous or treacherous Mm -hmm. or you know traitors to the cause because they happen to hold a different viewpoint Mm -hmm. absolutely but I do think that we are in a very different interesting time when it comes to those challenges because I mean even having words like mansplaining and heap-eating so mansplaining where a man um, take explains an idea that a woman already knows a lot of detail about um, or he peating where a woman says something and then a man says the same thing and goes this is a really good idea this uh um, and I think that we've we've seen a power in calling out people on our television screens, um, in our newspapers, and I think that our awareness has actually been working to tackle many of these issues. Um, I don't think I think we're we're moving towards winning, but the work still needs to be done. And I think that it's such an exciting time for women because we aren't allowing some of this aggression to just kind of be water under the bridge that we ignore. It's actually being exposed, challenged, and people having to take responsibility, networks having to take responsibility for what's happening in the press and media as well. Yeah, and that is absolutely essential, isn't it? Calling them out and making them stand up and take responsibility. And also my perception is when I do talk to to, to female politicians, you know, they often band together across party divides because because as, as women Absolutely, they feel yeah. they need to support each other. Very much going back to, to, to you know Joe Cox's words that we have more in common than that which divides us. 
but but it's presumably an opportunity too for 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 your party for the green party because there are a lot of women candidates within within the green party you're very female friendly absolutely and i think um one of the things i think is incredibly powerful about that is you know i've been inspired by our co-leader sean berry over a decade ago when she first ran to be mayor of london and seeing especially a young woman who doesn't look like your your assumption about what a politician should look like um, that inspired me of what I could achieve and certainly what paved the way for me first getting elected five years ago at the age of 29 and feeling like, you know, the Green Party was a place that would listen to those values and listen to what I was saying. And I think there's something really powerful about how women inspire women and support women. And I think that well, that's one of the things that I've always been really proud of in the Green Party, of how we do, um, when we, we select women, we vote for women, and then it's women who are at the forefront of our movement. And that goes back to those points you made earlier, isn't it, that this is a party that's about communities, because very Mm -hmm. often when we look at our local communities, and I'm not wishing to to, to be too gender-biased about this, but when we do look at our local communities, very often there are strong women who are active in that community, even if they're active in a non-political or non-party political way. You know, they're leading organisations, they're leading charities, they're leading Mm -hmm. institutions, they're creating change at local level. And fundamental changes as well. And I think just the experiences of many women that I work with, um, one of our members is currently... Uh, building up a legal challenge because her daughter died as a result of air pollution. Uh, some of our councillors have, have uh, come, uh, have ended up being elected because of the work that they've been doing on safe routes to school because it's women who use our communities and are often um, embedded in them in a very different way and are the best people to be making sure that those values are represented. And I think at the moment um, it's been interesting of how we challenge how our world works because it's a world built by men, whether that's looking at our architecture and how very famously there are uh, not as many female toilets in lots of places that uh, even though women will need more because of kind of basic logistics but um, because it was these buildings were built around men who would predominantly have been using them and how thinking how our cities and our architecture could be different and I think that it's been um, incredible to see that new book out that explained even things like Um, women are more likely to die in car crashes because the crash test dummy is actually built around a a man's body and that if a version for a woman is actually just, you know, a smaller version rather than taking into account that we have got, well, we've got got breasts, we've got different kind of uh, lumbar features, we've got, we're, we're shaped and designed in a very different way and it's actually leading to women being more at risk when they're doing basic things like driving. Yeah, we have a, you know, obviously that's a very... It's been a very male-dominated world, but I have a great sense that, that you and other colleagues in the Green Party and other, other women in other parties too are really driving that change. And hopefully, you know, it, it's difficult to make those, those assumptions about gender and sustainability and gender and the environment. But I do think, you know, as a woman, you know, today, the sense is that, you know, we are definitely campaigning around the climate because it matters to us and it matters to our children. And I know that, you know, we're not doing that alone. We're not doing it without the help and support of some of our, 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 you know, friends and partners who may be men. Um, but actually, I do think it's a role for men to take the lead on that because it's something that, you know, we care about this and we need our voices to be heard. Absolutely. And I think it's, um, I mean, when we're working towards readjusting inequality, we must be making sure that we are... Uh, addressing issues in our environment um, so we need to be making sure that we're addressing um, economic inequality social inequality as well as environmental protection but we need legislation that looks at all three of those things at the same time and I sometimes 
feel that I've um, it, doing something in isolation. So some parties might just talk about the economy, for example, as a, a single issue, when actually it's the economy that's built on the environment, it's built on, on workers, it's built on, on small businesses, and it's um, actually understanding what builds our economy is so fundamental. And um, that's why I've been so inspired by the Green New Deal, which although has been popularised uh, in America at the moment, it was actually here in the UK with Anne Pettifor working with people like Caroline Lucas that said that by we need to be making sure that we challenge um, the, the um, austerity, challenge the fact that we're in recession by making sure we're lifting people out of poverty at the same time of putting environmental uh, policies in place. So that's high-skilled job jobs, um, well-paid jobs, uh, jobs with dignity in renewables, in sustainable transport, in making our homes warm. And I think there's a real powerful point of when we address all of these issues in the same, uh, at the same time. Yeah, because all of those things are completely interconnected and we know that women suffer disproportionately as a result of climate change and will mm. continue to do so because of the wider impasse. We could talk about this all day, <laughs> but Amelia, I must let you go. Thank you so much for, for sharing time with us today and uh, we'll await the results of the elections with interest. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to my guests and thank you for listening. We would love to hear from you about what you think about Planet Pod. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or get in touch via the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe and download previous episodes. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give us a five-star review. It helps us make better programmes. Be sustainable and stay green. Planet Pod is an Akil Sounds production hosted by me, Amanda Carpenter, edited and produced by Jim Haywood, with additional research by Beth Palmer. Thank you.